Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, clever friends. If you'll be in New York City this month for Design Week, I want you to come to the Emerging Designer Showcase. It's at the Javits Center during ICFF on the main stage, Sunday, May 19th at 4 p.m. Think of it kind of like lightning round mini critiques plus professional speed dating all rolled into one. And it's genuinely entertaining. Here's how it works. On stage, five rising design talents will each present their work to a group of illustrious industry professionals for real talk advice and critical feedback. And for better or worse, this all happens in front of a live audience. We've hand-selected a phenomenal group of designers for this year's show, and we have a star-studded lineup of very discerning industry pros who will be up there with them. The Emerging Designer Showcase is presented with media partners Clever, that's us, and Design Milk, and with support from American Standard and Lumens. Again, that's Sunday, May 19th at 4 p.m. at ICFF at the Javits Center. You can register to attend for free at icff.com with our special promo code D-A-P-M-C-L-E-V-E-R. See you there. We, we are so different, but we have the same goals and we envision things the same way. We want to get to the same place, and we complement each other. Hey everyone, I'm Amy Devers, and this is Clever. And today we're talking to product, furniture, and interior designer, Claudia Washington. Claudia is based in El Salvador, where she was born and raised, and where she studied interior architecture at Dr. Jose Matias Delgado University. It was during her studies there that she met and partnered up with her other half in life and design, Harry Washington. After a stint studying furniture design in Milan, they returned to El Salvador to launch their studio together. Since then, Claudia and Harry's work has been manufactured by recognized world-class manufacturers, exhibited in museums and cultural centers, published in international magazines, and they've designed several successful pieces for international clients like Bernhardt Design, as well as hospitality projects like Salvadorian Surf Resort, Pura Surf. They're both passionate educators, and they're also organizers and sponsors of Contempo Biennale, the main design contest in El Salvador, which also helped launch their career. Let's hear from Claudia. My name is Claudia Washington. I'm from El Salvador. I live in San Salvador, the capital city. I'm an interior designer and furniture designer. 
I do it because I love it. And I did have uh, a bit of trouble finding what I wanted to do because my mom's an architect and I didn't want to do the same thing for some reason. But I ended up doing it and I enjoy it. Every day, every activity I do related to design, I do enjoy it. I live design at home. I live design at work. Every relationship I have is around design. That's why I do it. Well, that's a good reason. And you have built a lot of beautiful relationships, a a very strong design community, which we'll be talking about in a little bit. But let's go all the way back to the very beginning, to young Claudia. Um, your mom was an architect. You already mentioned that. What was what was your family like? And tell us about, did you grow up in San Salvador? Tell us about your hometown and everything that fascinated you as a little girl. I did grow up in San Salvador. I have lived here my whole life. I studied here also. I'm an only child. And my mom, she got divorced when I was four years old. So we lived by ourselves from four years old until I got married at 31. (laughs) So I have a very close relationship with my mother and I have a huge family. My mom uh, had four sisters and two brothers. So I grew up with my cousins. There are a lot of, a lot of women in my family. It's very noisy. (laughs) People are very, very loud, very loud in my family. (laughs) Um, I bet that's fun and chaotic (laughs) it's very chaotic that's probably why why I need chaos to solve every problem in my life oh interesting I need to go through chaos otherwise I can't solve it I grew up also with my grandparents because my mom and I moved to my grandparents house when I was around five or six until I was 11 when my mom uh, designed and build our own house. So I have a very close relationship with my grandmother also. She she was my mentor. She would listen to all of my problems and my joys. And I would talk to her every day. It sounds pretty badass to design and build your own house. And it sounds like if she got a divorce from your father at four years old, she was fairly independent. Was she Uh, exemplary for the time? Or how would you place her in context? My mom had to work between men her whole career, from carpenters to all the construction uh, team, Mm -hmm. also the other architects. That was around the 80s and the 90s. And in a Latin American culture, that is not very usual. So she was sometimes criticized for it, but she was, she was badass. (laughs) 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 Yeah, she's an example of how a woman can definitely do things well on her own. And she taught me how to be proud of being a woman and how to structure a fulfilling life by yourself. If you have a partner, if you have friends, she's taught me that they're companions. I mean, they go along the way with you and you share your life with them, but they don't make your life. You don't need them 
to be fulfilled or to accomplish your goals. So that's what I've learned from her. As a young girl, my mom would take me to every construction site. So I still have that smell of fresh concrete. Those were our Sundays day out to go to discover, I mean, not only her projects, but other people's projects. And we would sneak in and (laughs) yes. And sometimes we would go out on Sundays also since she loves plants and she has the green thumb. We were pretty much in contact with nature because she would take me to the volcano and we would spend time there. I would play with reclaimed wood objects, also with uh, Legos and dolls. And I don't know, I was a diverse girl. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Probably. I had all kinds of toys, but most mostly uh, toys that my mom made herself or, or that I found in the backyard or in the woods. That's one of the things that my mom taught me, that you have to build things, create things, and your situations, you also have to create them, and that everything has a consequence. Not only the things you own are the product of someone else's thinking, mm-hmm but also that everything you have and everything you go through are the result of what you have done in the past, the decisions you make. Your choices. The choices, yes. So that's one important thing that my mom has taught me. When I was visiting you in El Salvador, you mentioned that you were what they call a daughter of the war. And can you describe... To us, what that means, what that time was like, and what that meant for you and your youth? I was born in 1976, and the war started in 1979. The peace was signed in 1992. So all of that period, I grew up with the civil war going on. I think since I was very young, it was pretty normal for me to see it that way. But now that I look back, I know that I see my country in a very different way than the new generations do, because I didn't have, for example, the permission (laughs) to go out to the streets with my friends as a girl. I couldn't play outside the house. I had to play inside all the time. And whenever we went out with my mom, now I understand that we were taking a risk because the civil war was mostly going on uh, outside of San Salvador, not in the city, until probably 1989, I think, that did happen in the city. Being a child of the war means to be resourceful because you had to find a different way to do things means to understand how the government, how people, how architecture is in your country. Because if you come to my country, you can see that every house is fully protected. Their walls and 
gates all over the city. So you can't think of designing a place without thinking how to protect that place, even if the war is not a reality today. So I'm I'm kind of curious about your teenage years. It sounds like your dad wasn't around too much. Is that true? Yes, he wasn't around at all. He, he went to okay. Mexico. He went to Mexico. He left the country when I was four. We visited him when I was six, and that was the last time I saw him. And my mom got remarried when I was 15. So that was the worst age ever to have a new dad. <laughs> Since I was a teenager, it was super complicated. <laughs> I bet. <laughs> yes. Because you've already got your opinions and your hormones and they're both raging. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And and I was a, a opinionated probably and I was in a b- bad mood all the time. I was a teenager and I just didn't feel like I had time to solve all those problems that really belonged to my mother, not to me. So that's how I felt by then. And he had two children, my own age. And oh, so it was a a blended. And did you all get conjoined into one sort of family residence? Yes. Oh, wow. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, totally. That was crazy. So half of my mental activity went Mm -hmm. to that issue, to that part of my life that wasn't easy at all. Yeah. And I felt like I needed to solve it. But uh, I was always different, always different from my friends. Uh, I always had a different opinion on things. I was rebellious and... Rebellious in terms of being like an outlier or rebellious in terms of being like a troublemaker? How would you characterize your rebellion? I just had a different opinion on things. And whenever I didn't get what I thought I had to, I, I got confused and emotional. I've always been very intense. I tried to put my point and I was against everybody. I'm a person that always need to know the background of things, mm-hmm. even during my design process, or if I have a fight with someone or just a different opinion about one thing, I need to know the background. I need to start from scratch and understand what's going on, probably because I believe that everything happens for a reason. So if I don't understand the reason of something happening, Mm -hmm. I get in trouble. I get confused. I get uh, mad, angry. Mm -hmm. I don't know. So, so that's, that's the point where I try to structure what's going on and find a solution. And you already mentioned that you need chaos in order to solve a problem. So it sounds like if the chaos isn't being created, it's because nobody's questioning it deeply enough and you need to get in there under the hood and sort of take things apart. Did that create conflict between you and your mom? Because mother-daughter relationships are notorious for being, (laughs) you know, rough. (laughs) And teenage years, especially with a new marriage and a new family, it sounds like that might have been a chapter for you and your mom to to work through in adulthood, maybe. (laughs) 
Yes, of course. I mean, we would fight every day for every possible reason. Uh, we didn't seem to understand each other. I wasn't mature enough, obviously, to understand my mom's position. She was trying to have a new life, to build a new home. But I felt like this new life of hers was imposed to me. Right. And I just yeah. wouldn't take it. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but, and it was a, a whole chapter until I, I got older and I started to, to like my stepfather. He started to change also. We had like a huge talk and we went through catharsis and oh. things started to change. And I, I got to understand that my mom and my stepfather uh, have a lot of things in common. And they're both architects. And they think very differently when it comes to work, but they do see life the same way. So I learned to appreciate that he makes my mom happy. Mm -hmm. So basically I grew up. Yeah. <laughs> Did you have a creative outlet um, during this rough chapter of teenage years? The other thing that I'm kind of curious about is you, you at first resisted studying design and architecture because you wanted to do something different than your mom. But at the same time, you're totally wired for it. So did you have some internal conflict over that? I don't know if it was a creative outlet, but I grew up reading at design magazines, architecture mm -hmm. magazines, and drawing. And I would steal my mom's like markers and pencils and rulers and stuff mm -hmm. and take them to school. And I loved designing textures. Isn't that crazy? I don't do that anymore. But what's crazy about that? that because I don't do that anymore. I love it. And I admire people <laughs> who design surfaces and textures and, and things like that. But Ooh. I saw it very normal. Because I grew up with my mom, who was an architect. So I didn't think I had a real talent for that. For me, it was right. just... Right, it seems so obvious to you. Yeah. Yes, exactly. So, and I, I knew architectural terms, I mean, vocabulary from architects mm -hmm. that my friends didn't know. So I was kind of a weirdo. Actually, <laughs> well, you're a weirdo for a lot of reasons, not just your vocabulary. I, I love being a weirdo. That's fine. <laughs> I know you wear it very well. <laughs> it suits me. So I saw it. I, I saw it very normal. I mean, for me, it was very normal to to read at design magazines. I, I even had an, an an album since I was a little kid. I had an album with pictures from magazines, but mostly from furniture. Because I had this thing also that I saw very normal about uh -huh. redesigning again and again my room, my bedroom. And I would save up money to build that furniture. And I was obsessed about shelving systems. I was obsessed about drawers. <laughs> you are. <laughs> yeah. I get it because you were making order out of the chaos. Exactly. Exactly. And that would classify things from color <laughs> or sizes or brands 
I don't know. And I would collect things, collect things that looked alike because I loved the way it dressed up the room. So I would classify things and make textures, like visual textures out of it Mm -hmm. without really noticing that that was what I was doing. That was what I was doing. But I really hated to have things, I mean, to have a mess in my room. I wanted for Mm -hmm. the drawers to be impeccable. I still do classify, I mean, my clothes by color, which is is kind of annoying, especially for hearing. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I have overcome that phase a bit. Probably that's what I did to entertain myself or to get out of my day-to-day problems or... It sounds like it's also where your sense of agency, where you're finding and identifying and executing on your personal sense of agency because you were taking control of your immediate surroundings in your room and you were figuring out how you could manipulate them to make sense of the world around you. It's a perfect way to put it. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Clever is supported by Tools and Weapons, the podcast hosted by Microsoft Vice Chair and President Brad Smith. A recent episode took Brad to Venice, where he connected with Eve Ubelman, a partner whose company, Econem, has developed a game-changing technique for creating digital architectural models so comprehensive they've been dubbed twins. During the relative quiet of the pandemic, Eve and his team used drone-captured photography and powerful AI to create a full-scale digital twin of Venice, a city threatened by climate change and over-tourism. On Tools and Weapons, Eve tells Brad how he's using this incredible technology to help preserve some of the world's most endangered cultural heritage sites in pristine detail so they can be studied and appreciated for generations to come. To stay current on some of the most innovative people working with AI today, follow or subscribe to Tools and Weapons with Brad Smith wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, Clever listeners, we're getting excited for New York Design Week in May. This year will be better than ever. ICFF, North America's leading platform for contemporary design, 
will take place from May 19th to the 21st at the Javits Center in New York City. I'll be there, and I'm excited to let you know how Clever is collaborating with ICFF for Launchpad at Wanted, formerly known as Wanted Design Manhattan, and the Emerging Designer Showcase. Launchpad is an international platform for emerging designers that introduces new concepts and showcases prototypes of furniture, home accessories, and lighting. It is the best place for manufacturers to meet new designers, discover fresh ideas, and potential products to develop. The best of Launchpad winners will be selected by a jury of renowned industry professionals, led by yours truly. And they will go on to be featured in another edition of the popular Emerging Designers Showcase. I'll be leading the Emerging Designers Showcase live on the talk's main stage, where the five Launchpad finalists will have a chance to present their projects to our esteemed panel of professionals. It's always a really good time. So mark your calendars for Sunday, May 19th at 4 p.m. Both Launchpad and the Emerging Designer Showcase are presented with media partners Clever, that's us, and Design Milk, and with support from American Standard and Lumens. Visit icff.com to learn more and register to attend. Those are the letters icff.com. Come by and say hi. I would love to see you there. Support for Clever comes from Wix Studio. Instead of reading you another, let's be honest, boring ad script, Wix Studio just sent me this wild-looking Alice in Wonderland-themed website to scroll through and tell you about. So, whoa. This is not the web I'm used to. There's something called Mouse Parallax, which makes it feel like you can go deeper into the screen. And as I scroll down, it's like I'm falling down the rabbit hole. And things are moving in depth and perspective. Even my cursor has morphed into a glowing little orb. There are all these no-code animations that make this place feel organic and alive. And Alice is wearing some pretty cool shoes, by the way. Okay, I know I'm mixing up my narratives now, but we are definitely not in Kansas anymore. Your turn to go down the rabbit hole. Build your next web project on Wix Studio, the platform for agencies and enterprises. So let's get into the college years because you did study interior architecture at um, Dr. Jose Matias Delgado University. And was this an opening up of, I don't know, opportunity or tell me what it was like? Well, when I, when I finished high school, I went to Mm -hmm. New York for six months. That must've been wild. Yes, totally. Completely opened up my mind. I even considered staying to study design over there. But I didn't have enough money to stay. And my mom didn't have mm-hmm. enough money to pay for that for school over there. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. I went there to polish my English. I stayed there for six months. And I, I met pretty interesting people. I got out of, my, of the bubble I lived in here because all of my friends were from high school. I didn't know anyone from outside high school um, mm. besides my family. I didn't really have an active social life. I went out with my friends for dinner and stuff, but I didn't go for, I mean, to dance. Mm. I didn't go to bars. I tried my first drink at 21, and I was that kind of 
girl. A bit naive, I think. Was this in part a product of being a daughter of the war where you, for your own safety, had to kind of keep it, keep it tight and not go out and do risky things? I didn't know I was that naive until I learned I was. <laughs> oh, I know. <laughs> yes. That's probably an interesting time in your life. <laughs> yes. I mean, I didn't know what other people my age were doing besides my, mm-hmm. my friends from high school. So when I went to New York, I met people from Korea, France, Morocco, Greece, uh, New York, all kinds of places. It was a mm-hmm. cultural melange that really opened up my mind. And I started looking at myself through their eyes because I didn't feel I was someone who could change anything around her world before going there. But mm-hmm. when I went there, first I found out that my English wasn't as bad as theirs. <laughs> So I was helpful in class. So I had a reason to go. I was very helpful. They found I had some kind of a charm that they liked. I didn't know what it was, but they liked being around me. And I felt pretty loved and understood. (laughs) Yes. I mean, my whole perspective of life changed. So in that sense, yes, it was wild <laughs> because I I probably became not a different person, but a person who sees the world in a very different way. You found a sense of belonging. You kind of found the beginnings of a sense of purpose. And that's exactly that's certainly enough. Like that kind of acceptance is absolutely perspective shifting. Yes, exactly. It was a whole different world for me. High school here works in a very different space and different politics and classes are different. The cafeteria system is different. So everything was new for me. How how people went out, uh, how people met someone new, how they expressed themselves was new for me. I even changed my wardrobe. My sense of fashion was different. I wanted to be different. It felt good to be so different in a good way because I had been different in high school, but probably not for the good reasons. Or at least by then, I didn't think it was the good reasons. Now I know that different is good. But by then, I didn't know that. You just felt other. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) New York helped a lot. When I came back, I started uh, studying graphic design. Okay. Because I like making textures and creating fonts and all those things. I really admired advertising. I thought I was going to work in advertising because I really loved the way advertisers would say one thing with different instruments is how to get an idea or how to spread an idea by analyzing how people think and how they're going to take that idea that you're communicating. It's how to deliver a message so that people hear it in the spirit that you 
intend. Exactly. It's fascinating to me, too, because it involves a lot of psychological understanding of how, what humans respond to. So in many ways, it's it's a manipulation of humanity, sometimes for good and sometimes for evil. But, <laughs> but it still <laughs> is very interesting in that way. Yeah, I, I, I really admire that. So I did one year. I was there for one year. And I felt like it was lacking dimensions. It was too flat for me. Everything was too flat. And I'm not a good drawer, even if I'm a designer. Right now, they're still not good. (laughs) I really didn't feel complete studying that, designing things that I didn't really get to materialize. I mean... Yeah, it, it wasn't a, a three-dimensional thing that was coming out of there. So mm-hmm. I dropped out and I went for cooking. I mean, I wanted to be a chef. So I went to... Oh, I didn't uh, even know about this. That's a fun diversion. <laughs> <laughs> yes. My mom was... I can't tell you how angry she was. Because she saw my, my talent and my skills and she would go like, Claudia, okay, so you can create new dishes and you can cook, yes, but you're wasting your time there. And she she really tried to uh, talk me out of cooking school. I I was very stubborn. So I stayed there for one more year <laughs> until I, I really understood that wasn't my thing. I mean, the only thing I liked about being a chef is the fact that I could create things, but that I could create things that looked good. It wasn't about the flavor things or it wasn't about that. (laughs) You were creating food compositions. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) I wanted to take pictures of food. So I went back to design school and I started the interior architecture career and I stayed there. Did it feel like a fit? I mean, how long were you in it before you were like, okay, I can, I can follow this through? No, the first semester I was good. Oh, okay. You knew. Yes. <laughs> but you know what? I fully support your investigation into advertising and food because I think knowing what you don't want to do or exploring things is just as important to making that click feel really resonant. I don't know if you would have known so fully if you hadn't done some exploration. I'm sure I'm sure I wouldn't. I had to try. I had to try things. I'm really interested in at what point you met Harry and how the two of you decided to embark on this career together as well as you know life and all the things that accompany life so I met Harry back in 2000 were you already a professional or were you still in school I was finishing I was finishing school and he was kind of starting school first I went to this this is kind of funny but I went to a friend's house a friend from school and he had Mm -hmm. this piece of art some wall art And I was very attracted to it. And I said, who did that? And she said, ah, it's a friend from school. His name is Harry Washington. And I said, out of a joke, I said, I'm going to marry this guy. (laughs) That was so funny. (gasps) Isn't that, whoa. That's crazy. And she she, she responded to it 
saying, yeah, right, Claudia, <laughs> whatever, your comment <laughs> is so out of place. But then at school, we had an event. This friend of mine told me who Harry was. She showed me who Harry was. And I found him so cute. He's yes. pretty cute. I liked him from the first time I liked him. I asked for his phone number and I called him. Uh-huh. And there was a party going on, a party from school. It was like the designer's week or something like that. And I said, listen, this is Claudia. And he said, yeah, I know who you are. And I said, <laughs> um, I, don't, I don't have anyone to go to this party with. Would you go with me? And he said, yes, of course. And he said he was pretty nervous. He couldn't believe I had called him. I don't know how... That idea came up to my mind, but I just did it. So we went out and we went to this party and we had the best time ever. But then he met someone else and I met someone else. And we went out with this someone else <laughs> for a year and a half or so. Oh, Yes, he, he had a girlfriend. I had a boyfriend. And after two years, probably, I asked the design school to give me a class. I wanted to be a teacher. So they gave me the furniture design class because I had been working on furniture by myself as a freelancer. Harry was my student, but I didn't know that. <laughs> I didn't know by then. I mean, before taking the class, I didn't know he was going to be my student. At the end of that term, we began going out and we felt totally in love. And I was working by myself, but we began doing things together, like designing small accessories and exploring with new materials that we could find to do accessories. I mean, we would work with wood, but we would also work with that kind of a plaster that dentists use. And we would make incense holders and things and then sell them. Oh, that's fun. So you were kind of like you had a little studio workshop and also a tiny little entrepreneurial endeavor. You're making things and selling them together. So that kind of covers all the bases. Yes. <laughs> and after that, we went to Milan together for a furniture design course. And we stayed there for two months or so. We went to the um, IED, Instituto Europeo de Design, de Design, and that changed our whole perspective on furniture, furniture design, even interior design. We didn't know, we really didn't know how the design world worked. Well, Milan is sort of the center of it. So did you feel like that was a bit of boot camp? Probably, yes. We visited the like the bigger brand factories we learned a lot and we got to plan what we were going to do when we came back so our idea was to set up a studio together mm -hmm. and design furniture that would look industrial or at least sophisticated like an italian piece of furniture but Mm -hmm. with artisanal techniques because we didn't have an industry. We didn't have 
furniture makers here. We didn't have access to most of the materials or finishes or practically anything that was industrially made. Mm, so mm-hmm. we set up a workshop. It's an artisan-based ecosystem in El Salvador is, is kind of what you're saying. The Exactly. The industrial factories and finishes and materials and machining was was all sort of not happening in the country? Non-existing, and it still doesn't exist. It's still made by hand. Everything Mm -hmm. we design is made by hand. But we were very ambitious, and we really wanted to um, explore how far we could go with wood, how far we we could go with what we had at hand. For example, fiberglass or metalworking or natural fibers, ceramics. And we failed at, for example, ceramics. We really failed. I mean, oh no, that dental that was, plaster didn't didn't take you there. That was chaotic. It was. <laughs> oh no, that was terrible. It was back in two thousand four and five. So we were stuck with wood and metal. That's how we started working together, and we made like a great combination, a great combo. We we are so different, but we have the same goals and we envision things the same way. We want to get to the same place and we complement each other. So I'm really interested in that dynamic. Like, how do you complement each other? Where would you say your strengths are and Harry's strengths are? My strengths are analysis, tearing things apart to put them together again. One of my biggest strengths is chaos. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, creating that chaos and classifying things to get a solution. And Harry is more of a shaper. I do stick drawings mm-hmm. and he translates that. But there is a phase during the process where we work together. I mean, we both have the necessity of speaking out what we feel the idea must turn into or what the client feels needs. It's hard to describe our process. What I'm getting a picture of is that you both are intrinsically invested in designing something that has a purpose and a meaning, and you can agree on why you're bringing it into the world. So you're the person who can analyze and and dismantle the system and sort of create the chaos and settle the dust in a, in a way that can help unpack what that why is. And then Harry's the sculptor. Harry takes those parts and smooths the edges and gives it form and shape that starts to express what that why is. Am I getting close? Yes, it is something like that. And then I edit what he's done, and then we get yeah. we get pissed and you at go each back other and for a while. Yeah, sure, <laughs> sure. That sounds pretty natural. Oh, my gosh. I'm glad to hear that. <laughs> at least you're not robots. <laughs> yes. First the stick drawings, then he, he polishes it, he shapes it, mm-hmm. like you said. And then we edit, and then we go back and forth. Yes, and then how it goes. Your studio began with this imperative to create sophisticated designs that sort of could, could live in the world. 
but that utilized El Salvadorian artisan techniques and resources. And then you really got going. Can you describe like how your studio got steam and, and what really put you on the map? In the beginning, it was pretty rough and bumpy because clients were not used to pay for design. They just didn't get it. They didn't get why they would pay for something that was not tangible. So we had to teach them and explain every time we were doing exactly what they couldn't do and what a carpenter couldn't do. It was creating something some clients started to understand it, but they also wanted the finished product. Mm -hmm. So we used our workshop a lot to do that. It didn't make sense to them to have just an idea on paper that they couldn't use. They really didn't feel like they could go to a carpentry workshop or to a metal worker and explain them what they wanted to do, even though sometimes they tried. They really needed you to follow that all the way through the production phase. Yes, and it's still that way most of the time. So we don't have the workshop anymore, but we do finish the whole project. We take our artisans and we explain the project and we go through prototyping process with them. And we make changes with them and we show them to the client and it's a back and forth thing. And we're still doing it the same way we began doing it because the client just feels like it's necessary. The clients did start understanding why they had to pay for our services because Mm -hmm. we kept on quoting our services and right. <laughs> yes. They're like, wait, what's this? What's this charge? And you're like, well, here's all the expertise and thinking and prototyping and model making and yeah. <laughs> refining that goes into the before we actually go to the carpenter and say, will you please make this? Exactly. One thing Harry and I are very much involved in here is in educating people about design in general. We don't want to be arrogant or that we know more than the client. We just want for people to understand and feel and live design as it's supposed to be. Because there's so much talent in El Salvador. And all those generations, those new generations of designers, we want for them to have clear path. Well, one of the ways that you're working hard to open up this path is through the design biennial Contempo that are enormously instrumental in growing into a showcase of Salvadorian design, but also an education platform and a way to help society at large see and appreciate El Salvadorian design voices. Can you talk about the the story of Contempo and how you've grown it in the, what is it, 12 or 14 years that you've been doing it? 12 years, yes. I'm going to tell you a bit of the story. Contempo was a contest, a design contest, that was created by, by a USAID project. Their idea was to come up with some collections that would 
add value to the products that were exported from El Salvador. We were part of the finalists, and you had to design a three-piece collection. It was super hard to design a collection. It was not just one product, but a, a collection. Mm-hmm. There were five first prizes, <laughs> five first positions, and we were number five. <laughs> so probably we were, we were supposed to be in the middle of all of this story that began with that contemple, because okay. usually there are only three prizes, not five. And we were number five. The five winners would have an El Salvador stand at ICFF. And we took our product there for the first three prizes. They had everything paid for. But for us, only to take the product, which was already a lot. But Harry and I were not allowed to go unless we paid for it. So we asked for our first credit cards and we maxed them out and we went to New York to present our product. And one day before that, before going, we were super nervous because we had one chair, one lamp and one table. The store product was the chair. We loved it. And it was so much work. We had to do it so many times. We spent like $4,000 making it. We Mm -hmm. had to sleep over the saddler. He was making the chair because it was a leather chair that dressed a structure. And we had to sleep over his house to be on top of it because he didn't know how to make it. (laughs) And we were like, no, that's not the way to do it. Let's unsaw it. Okay. Let's do it again. It it was such an adventure. It was very, very nice. But we had another version. It was like the raggedy version of that chair, which was made Mm -hmm. from wire tubes. I mean, we had the metal structure, but the seat and the backrest were made from wire tubes. But we didn't make it on time. So we couldn't put it on the plane to go to ICFF. So we were taking pictures of that chair to make some postcards the day before going to New York so we could have at least pictures of the chair. We were very stressed and everything was so uncertain. We didn't know how ITFF looked like. We didn't know who we were going to meet there, if there were other Latin Americans. And we had this vision at the same time, conquering the world, but feeling so small in the middle of New York that we didn't know what to do with what we had. Yeah. And we saw like every flaw on that chair. I mean, all the little strings that came out and crooked leather parts. I don't know how to, how to tell you. We saw everything bad with the chair when we were here and the chair was already in New York. And I opened my computer and I said to Harry, okay, we cannot take this other chair. We're not going to sell the product because every, we thought ICFF was to sell products, to get picked up by a, by a brand. So I told Harry, you know, we've been following Jerry Helling's story and 
the project he's been doing with uh, the design, the art design from Pasadena. So we need to meet this guy. Let's call him. And Harry was like, what? How? <laughs> Whenever my, my brain clicks in that direction, I just take action. I don't exactly know when it clicks, but when it does, I just take action. I opened up my computer and I looked for Bernhard Design and I started calling every number I could find. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody answered. Everybody was at ICFF already. Of course, they didn't have Jerry Helling's number. I didn't know how it worked. Really, I didn't know. Uh-huh. So what we're going to do is that we're going to sell ourselves as designers. It doesn't matter if they don't like the specific chair we're bringing or the table or the lamp. We're going to talk about us. Let's do that. And for us, it was something new. It was like we were creating the toilet. I mean, we (laughs) didn't know that was normal. (laughs) So we went to ICFF and we did that. And at one point, our friend from the USA Project, Isabel Mason, she asked the group if we wanted to meet someone in specific. And we said, Jerry Helling from Bernhard Design. And Isabel went to the Bernhard Design booth and she tells Jerry, without knowing his Jerry, this story about these spectacular Salvadoran designers that he <laughs> needed to go check out and that she was going to insist until he really went there. So the first day passed and he didn't go. The second day passed and he didn't go either. And the third day, Isabel went back to the, for the, for the third time, went back to Bernhard Design's booth. And he said, okay, I promise you I'm going to go at the end of the day because I really have to see what you're talking about. Because, <laughs> girl, you really know how to sell. So, <laughs> yes. So around four, he showed up and we had only seen him in pictures. We had never seen the guy in real life. And I was sitting at some stairs that were just behind the booth. And I saw Jerry from a distance. (laughs) I saw him. (laughs) And I started making signs to Harry. And I said, that's him. That's him. That's him. And Harry, what? I don't understand you. And I'm like, oh, my God. <laughs> so I stood up and went there. And I said, that's the guy from Bernhard Design. He's such a gentleman, you know. And yes. he he went by every product, talking to every designer. He sat on the floor, checking the, the products, the designs. He sat on the chairs. He talked to us, everything. He He actually liked our chair. He liked how comfortable it was, but he called it the Madonna because it had a series of belts on the back. But it was super exciting. And Jerry, at the end of that meeting, he gave me his card. And I didn't know what to do with that card. And Harry didn't either. We, we couldn't believe we had his card. The trip was super nice and all. We, we had... Many people coming to her chair and talking about it, la la. And we came back to El Salvador. We didn't have one penny. We couldn't go to the supermarket. We had spent all of our money in New York. And I opened up my computer 
we got an email from Jerry only with the subject, no content at all, asking where we were, that he needed to talk to us. And we called him right away. Since we didn't know how it worked, it was really funny the first time because I think he kind of knew that we didn't know how it worked. He didn't exactly say, listen, can we design a product together or would you like to do something for our hard design? No. He said, listen, we have this uh, show going on in June, which is called Neocon in Chicago. Would you like to come over and see what Bernhard Design is about and learn a bit about us? And that's it. <laughs> so we said, yeah, okay, okay. that sounds great. <laughs> so all this time, we were making theories about what was going to happen. Mm-hmm. Prob- probably we're going and be part of Bernhard Design's team, but he was not going to ask for a product. I don't know. We didn't know what he was going to say. But we got together in Chicago, and he gave us a brief. We were super excited about it. We didn't know how to respond uh, to it at first because we had never uh, designed a product for uh, an international company. But by being given a brief you were given an opportunity to design within the parameters that Bernhardt Design had set out, right? So you had an opportunity to submit a proposal? Exactly. Not every creative director or every company worked the same way. I mean, to the country, they're they're very different. And you never know what their process or system really is. But with Jerry, he usually gives you a brief of what he needs because he has that ability of spotting exactly the kind of product the collection needs. He he did give us a brief, a very detailed thing about what he needed. It was kind of difficult because he said, listen, I, I want a collection of sofas. It's kind of a crossover between American and Italian. It has to be massive but delicate it has to be big but it has to feel like it's floating and it has to be very comfortable but it's contract so I don't want for it to feel residential and things like that wow (laughs) (laughs) so we were like oh my god but we made it and for us it was a life-changing story very romantic, if you want to see it that way, because he got us to London and to New York for press interviews before the launch. He decided the picture, I mean, the the official picture of the sofa was to be taken here in El Salvador. This friend of ours, he was one of our clients, and he's the owner of one of the most prominent journals here he let us use his house and he has a beautiful beautiful 50s house so we took the pictures there I mean Jerry flew over here to take Mm -hmm. the pictures we took pictures of our of our apartment and then we took the pictures of the Calibra and at the same time when he brought the sofas for the photo shoot 
he brought them for also for the next Contempo happening, which was in 2008. So this is about two years after the original USA competition. That happened pretty fast. It was pretty fast. The development of the product happened in months. I don't know. It was super fast. Wow. That must have been kind of exciting and and terrifying. Well, yes. I mean, <laughs> but it was mostly exciting. It was mostly exciting, but we we, we didn't want to let Jerry down, of course. But he was also stewarding the project, so he wasn't going to let himself get let down. We didn't know that by then. I mean, okay. <laughs> <laughs> sure. It's a new relationship. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but now we know now we know yeah. we were in very good hands we, we were worried but we were having so much fun and we just felt so blessed and so grateful that that was happening in our lives jerry came here to be a mm-hmm. uh, juror at contempo after usa program that that created contempo was no longer there isabel mason and Harry and I worked together. Uh, also, Emma Schonenberg, who's a surface designer, we didn't want for the project to die. So we worked together for it to still be a reality. But it went on for four more years every year. Mm-hmm. And then it became a Biennale. This whole story with Jerry happened in one year's time? Yes. Wow. What shape is this taking as it evolves from the for the original USAID competition? At first, it was still a contest, just a contest. Jerry, he helped a lot. He got very much involved. And he introduced us to new people who could come here to El Salvador and help us by being, being part of the jury. Mm-hmm. So they would come to El Salvador evaluate the products and give the prizes to the winners and also give some small conferences or talks, design talks. And it lasted a week. Behind that, our super small team would find sponsors Mm -hmm. and plan the talks. I mean, it sounds like, like it was not a lot of work, but it actually was. It was not until 2019 that I got involved again in the project because I hadn't been involved for probably two or three contempos. I don't know. I got my spark back and (laughs) I I, I was so motivated by it. Whenever I, I believe in one project, I just can't drop it. I happen to see a new face in this project. I feel like it has the power to change so many things. And I felt like it couldn't stay just as a contest, that it had to become a platform and something Mm -hmm. that would help us communicate, not only to designers or to specific clients, but to Salvadorans in general and also to the world about what's happening here in El Salvador. I had the pleasure of being a juror this year for the competition portion of it. And I also 
gave a panel discussion and I was able to see how it's evolved. I mean, if it started as just one competition from USAID, it is now a whole host of activities that center around Salvadorian design, including at the centerpiece, this this really strong educational portion of it that takes the contestants through the process of not just awarding their designs, you you actually shortlist contestants to be involved in a whole process where they get feedback and they get to make a prototype and they get to work with artisans and they end up with a refined prototype that then gets submitted to the contest. And around that are all of these workshops and seminars and events that are designed to showcase Salvadorian design for me, I got a very strong sense of of national identity from the whole thing. It is part of it, yes. The thing is that since Harry and I began our studio, we created for us this web of artisans and workers in different materials and techniques that have been close to us, I mean, working with us for 12 or 15 years already. And also new generations of of designers have been doing the same thing. And we have shared also uh, most of our contacts. So these artisans have had the opportunity to work with other designers. It's a fascinating thing that the artisans are starting to recognize design as an element that gives them work. Mm. I mean, they recognize Contempo as something important happening and they know what kind of quality or the style of the products that are shown during that contest. It's very important for us to create a platform of interaction within designers and artisans, but also to connect that thing happening, that interaction happening to all the people that are aware of the economic movements of the country, let's say. Like, for example, uh, tourism is becoming a big part of incomes in El Salvador. Mm -hmm. Design is relating to tourism more and more every day through the artisans also. So there's like a, a, a cycle of activities, like a chain of value that's working to make El Salvador a better place. But we would love for people that have the power to make changes in the country and for people that not only own big companies, but that have power to understand that design is not only about creating nice, good-looking products or designing a nice place to live in, but it's a tool that allows to create more income to people and therefore to the country. It's an economic channel. It is totally an economic channel, like Puro, like like it's happening in Puro Surf. I mean, if Puro Surf 
didn't have design, the concept itself of the surf academy wouldn't be enough to attract all of those tourists. But design is talking through the spaces, I mean, through all the rooms, through the restaurant, everything is talking to people. And pictures show it, videos show it, and that's why people come. Whenever they come, they get really enthusiastic about it, mm. and they even invite other people from other countries to come visit, which has never happened before in El Salvador. It's rare. It's new to El Salvador. So design is not only expressing a certain vibe of El Salvador, it's also expanding El Salvador's own cultural understanding of what it can do for the country in terms of economic prosperity, in terms of keeping a lot of tradition and heritage crafts alive, in terms of using, you know, the the ethical use of the resources. I, I see that all at play in Contempo as a, as a showcase of all of that. What we really want is for people to acknowledge it. We want for it to be a tool for people to, to really understand it. Some people are starting to see it, but I don't think they, they see how deep it goes or what else you can do with it. Right. Well, no, that's because it's a vision that's hard to see if you're not trained in thinking like a designer. Exactly. So fast forward to like 80-year-old Claudia. What do you feel you need to do between now and, and then to look back on your life and assure that you've, you feel deeply fulfilled? I would love to keep on working on these projects like Contempo. Hopefully some social-oriented projects can come out of it. When you say social, do you mean like social justice or do you mean like community building? Commun community, both? yeah, people. Okay. Like impact from design in mm. people. Like, for example, lower income stratus. You want to use design to, to help people, to empower people who don't have all the opportunities. Yeah, exactly. Is there something you have in mind with regard to that? I would love to design like the perfect school installations for low-income students. Because mm -hmm. over here, I don't know if you, if you know that, but the conditions of public schools are terrible. Some of them have no floor and the tables are wrecked. Some of them don't, don't even have tables, no ceiling, and kids have to walk by themselves to this not only insecure, but uncomfortable, inhuman places. So the conditions are far from the right ones for a kid to, to learn new things, to feel motivated mm -hmm. by learning new things. They barely have mm -hmm. anything, any tools to create like the standard school that the government could build and that they would follow some parameters to yeah. make those schools would be great. Wow. I can totally see you guys doing that. Kind of designing a, a template for really conducive learning that then the government could follow 
that template and build schools that would support learning in a really conducive and cohesive way across the country. Is that kind of what you're saying? Yes. Well, let's do it. You can do it. <laughs> yes, I, w- I would love to do it. One of the things I, I really want to do is to find new people mm-hmm. in El Salvador that are interested in not only making those changes, because already many people want to help, but that really embrace collaboration without any hidden agenda, just for the love of helping, and that we can do it through design. I mean, designing programs, designing structure, designing a plan to help. Designing a plan and and attracting the right partners who can execute on this plan because they're going to have to come from different sectors and across different industries and they're you know they're going to have to be from education and government and public development and civic planning and all of that exactly part of that is communicating the idea that design can solve this complex challenge with the right partners. It's it's putting these people in place and coming up with a plan and then everyone knows their role and how to execute on it for the the common goal. But they got to believe in the common goal and so that's you and Harry. That's what you guys got to do. Yes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, I will be there for the ribbon cutting ceremony on the first school built. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I can't wait. I know it's going to happen. We just put it out into the universe. It's going to happen. I've seen you work. It's going to work. I kind of I kind of feel it too. I think it's going to happen. So what's going on now? Like what are the new projects that I know you can't talk about everything, but what what can you tell me about what Harry and Claudia Washington are working on in the studio? Okay, so right now we are working on a new project with Bernhardt that hopefully is going to come out soon. We're super excited about it. He keeps on trusting Claudia and Harry Washington. (laughs) Can you tell us what you're working on with Bernard or is there a secret till it comes out? No, there's some tables. Cool. Yeah. Excited to see those. (laughs) They're going to sell. I know. (laughs) Also, we're working on a very particular and new project with council with Derek Tan. That that is a secret. I can't tell you what it is about, but we're very, very excited about. And, oh, I'm happy um, to hear that. Yes. No, no, we love it. It's making us go through through that intimate design process we have, Harry and I. So mm-hmm. that's why that's why I love it so much. And we're working on a, on a, a brand of our own to be able to also curate some products from El Salvador, from other designers from El Salvador, and to use oh, it as that. a... Yes, we want to use it also as a, as a communication channel. So people from El Salvador and from outside El Salvador can hear about what's happening here and who's coming out and what we're doing, what's the impact of design here in El Salvador and outside, etc. Well, that sounds amazing. Where can we keep tabs on that? What what is your website and social media so we can follow along? Our website is chwashington.com and our Instagram is at CH Washington Studio. We will be following along and we're excited to see how this develops. Okay, thank you so much. 
Thank you for listening. To see images of Claudia's work and read the show notes, click the link in the details of this episode on your podcast app. Or go to cleverpodcast.com, where you can also sign up for our newsletter. Subscribe to Clever on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you would do us a favor, please rate and review. It really does help a lot. We love chatting with you on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find us at Clever Podcast, and you can find me at Amy Devers. Clever is produced by 2VDE Media, with editing by Rich Straffolino and music by L1011. Clever is proudly distributed by Design Milk.